שלום חברים, אני גילנג, אני גר באנגליה, למדתי עברית באוניברסיטה אוקספורד שנה אחת. הלו, נמה סיה גילנג, סיה סקארנג טינגל די אינגריס, דן סיה בלאג'ר בהסה איברני די אוניברסיטס אוקספורד סלאמה סאטו טאהון. הלו, מי נאם איס גילנג, אני אינדוניזיאן, ואני סטאדיד היברו פור וואן יר את האוניברסיטי אוקספורד. אז בוקר טוב. כן, בוקר טוב. מה שלומך, גילנג? אני בסדר, תודה רבה. ואתה, מתן? אני בסדר גמור, תודה, תודה. חג שמח, חג סוכות שמח. כן, חג שמח. חג שמח לכולם. חג שמח. אתה בונה סוכה? לא, אני לא בנה סוכה, לא בניתי סוכה, אבל... חלכתי לברודסטריט ואוקספורד והיה שם כמו פסטיבל סוכה. אה, אוקיי, אז אתה הלכת לסוכות פסטיבל באוקספורד. כן. אוקיי, למה עשית את זה? אני אפילו לא זוכר שזה היה חולדה, מי אמרה לי, אה, אוקיי. אז אתה לא למדת היברו עם אותי, אבל כמו רות, שדיברה על הפודקאסט לפני כמה חודשים, אתה פרויקט אדווקסי לבלפור פרויקט, פרויקט שאני קורדינט, ואתה מלמדים אבל אתה גם מלמד היברו באוקספורד. אז אני רוצה לדעת מה עושה אינדונזיאן שעושה מאסטר באוניברסיטאות באוקספורד, ועל כן החלטה explain first why then I pick Middle Eastern studies and then why Oxford why I don't study for instance I don't know in Saudi Arabia or yeah. or, or Egypt right um, people people like to ask that question well first of all um, I have been raised and still is still am uh, raised in a, a religious family so my engagement with Islam is very strong and so I From an early age, I, am, I have like this very strong attachment and awareness to issues in the Middle East and have been learning Arabic perhaps since I was 12 years old. So I've, I've been studying Arabic for six years as part of my secondary uh, education in Indonesia. Is it something common for Indonesian, Muslim Indonesians to, to study Arabic? As a... mm, no, it's not that common. People do read the Arabic language. scripts to read for to read religious texts but barely anyone would understand what it means unless they would read the English translation same same thing if you ask a Muslim person from Turkey or Pakistan yeah. it's pretty much the same situation yeah. um, after graduating from high school I continued my undergrad in Japan studying international relations and of course studying international relations is We cover a broad range of regions and a broad range of topics, but I immediately knew like right away that I want to specialize out of these different regions, the Middle East, and out of these different topics, you know you have sociology, economy, and whatnot. I would like to focus on religion and politics. 
So I remember you telling me that you coming to Oxford had to do with uh, meeting Professor Avi Schleim, who's a senior yeah. professor in Oxford. Yeah, yeah. When I say that I would like to study um, Middle Eastern studies, then the option is where, right? You have different options where to study that. I would like to be more engaged in the like English-speaking academic world while, of course, being aware on the trend on the region itself. Second of all, I studied, you know, the West is also very broad. I could have studied in the U.S., for instance, but I did not. I studied in the U.K. instead and in Oxford particularly for two reasons. First of all, because my primary interest in the Middle East is Israel-Palestine. And yeah, I feel like Britain has more historic role in the region. You would have more archives, you have more resources. It's, it is an interesting decision from someone who's coming with some conscience of colonization uh, to choose uh, Britain as a place to study about the former colonized Middle East. Why did you choose that? I see. I think um, like this different conversation about you know being sensitive on the colonial past, interestingly, we as the colonized people are not as much sensitive maybe or we don't make a, a big much of a big deal out of it than people you know in the West uh, who, who studied like let's say decolonization studies I don't know how to how to frame it but like re- really if you go back to Indonesia they would have no problem studying about Indonesia in the Netherlands and it's actually like just being very objective um, studies about Indonesia in the Netherlands our former colony is more yeah it has more resources and we it's it just makes sense to to study there and we we we, we well, even though we are conscious about our colonial history, we, we would never, like, for the sake of, you know, uh, we have to study Indonesia only in Indonesia. It's never it's never the case like that. Yeah, so you said you wanted to study Middle East and specifically that your interest was Israel and Palestine. So yes. how did you develop that inter- those two interests? Like, Indonesia is quite far, mm. is what we call yeah. the Far East, I would say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you um, feel you are from yeah, the so, far east or are we the far europe or the far <laughs> i think <laughs> i think i never I, I think i never put it I, I would i would never frame it that way because i mean yeah I, I never treat particular location on this planet as the center so yeah. there's never like the sos yeah, right yeah. um yeah uh so to answer your question like in Indonesia, we have different foreign policy issues, but I could tell you that the foreign, and this is backed by my master's thesis that I did in Oxford, that the foreign policy issue that is most grassrooted, so I'm saying is this is not only the concern of some general or admiral or some, or like a diplomat in the foreign ministry, but actually if you go to the market or you go to places people would actually recognize and have sentiments towards this issue is the issue of Palestine. Okay. It's interesting that you, you have other issues near to us. Let's say South China Sea is a very serious issue, right? South China Sea or even the, the plight of the Rohingyas um, under the Myanmar regime. And these things, well, every now and then it, it does... Uh, get the spotlight in the media and people talk about it, but it would never outshine the kind of consistency, the kind of emotional sentiment, the kind of attention that 
the Palestinian issue receive in my country. And so it might be very difficult for people outside of Indonesia to understand this. But just to give you a short answer, why an Indonesia, why Indonesian like living thousands of miles away from this country, Palestine, this um, location, Palestine, yeah, it's so, like has it, so much attention. Why? Yeah, it's just yeah, it's just you, you would tell me why you, you could are never so miss, much yeah. obsessed with us if you live so far. Can't you, <laughs> can't you like find other conflicts around? Asia to deal with like leave us alone please yes uh, yes um okay so I think like for Mus- for I, I could only speak for for Muslims yeah uh, because of course Indonesia is a Muslim majority country for those who don't know we have I think more than 85% Muslims so that's a lot of Muslims like 240 million more yeah and Uh, Palestine, especially the city of Jerusalem, Al-Quds, or specifically, and specifically uh, the, the Al-Aqsa compound, mm-hmm. the Haram al-Sharif, is very important to the religion. Like, based on my findings, so even 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 before the, the notion of Palestine is, in, is created, so of course, you would never f- find the word Philistine or Palestine in the Quran or the Hadith, right? You would never find that. You would find reference to um, Al-Aqsa. You would find reference to Baytul Maqdis, which is the area which is sometimes referred to as Jerusalem as well. And of, and the term Al-Quds also, you don't find it in the scriptures. It's strictly either uh, Al-Aqsa or Baytul Maqdis. But these things, so we Indonesians... that maybe this conflict has created a far greater religious importance of those places? Um, no, what I'm, I'm trying to get at before that is, so even before this conflict occurred, like far, far before that, we Indonesians already have engagement and sentiment towards the region, even though we don't know it as Palestine. We never as heard about it from Israel. Every person in, on earth. Yeah, but particularly, but particularly in Indonesia, for some reason, we have this particular holiday that we don't find in Saudi Arabia or Egypt. Which even holiday? Countries that, this holiday is called... Uh, Isra al-Mi'raj, which is the day in wi- um, on which uh, Muslims believe that the Prophet like do this tr- night journey, like miraculous journey from Mecca to Jerusalem and from Jerusalem to the heavens. So yes, every Muslim, if you go to Egypt, if you go to Turkey, people know about this occasion, but they would never make it a public holiday. In Indonesia, I don't need to go to school on this holiday because it's such of a cultural importance. So we have specific tradition pertaining to this holiday. So we do... Uh, so before, again, just to reiterate, before Palestine, the notion of Palestine or Israel came into being, our cultural attachment to this region, even compared to other Muslim countries, are strong. Maybe, maybe try to look back in your childhood And um, when did this notion came, came up first in your notion? What were the first things that you heard about yes. Palestine, about Israel? Yes. What was the yes. images that the, your society drew yes. in your mind about this far old yeah. place? Okay. So, of course, um, it started not with Palestine or, or Israel. As I've said, it, we mainly understand the issue... Uh, from 
uh, religion from Al Aqsa and just that's the tiny place called Al Aqsa, right? Not really the broader region. We I yeah. would never know about Haifa or I would never know about uh, Hebron, for instance. Um, but this all changed. I mean, in my experience in 2008-2009, I remember I was like on the early year of my elementary school and the first Gaza war occurred, right? The Operation Kaslid, or is it before that? I don't remember. Okay. Uh, but yeah, like you have the, the, the first full-blown invasion of Gaza after the Israeli disengagement in 2005, I think, right? right? And then you have the blockade, then you have Hamas takeover of the Strip, then you have that first invasion. And that's the first image that I had regarding the, the region, you know, uh, bloodshed. And I, I, I also remember um, the news about Israel using white phosphorus. So I do listen about Iraq war and whatnot, but for some reason, I just have this image of, okay, other countries do a lot of bad things, but why Israel did like this particular heinous thing to the Palestinians using this white phosphorus? And the images are just more vivid compared to, yes, there are other conflicts that are bad, but for some reason, the attention that I had at that time makes me, it's it's as as though like Israel is, you know, like, the 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 worst perpetrator of of crime in oh, in wow. humanity so for some you, reason you saw it like uh, David and Goliath yes something like that um and of course Indonesians we don't have a very good literacy regarding World War Two uh we we have literacy for what happened to us under the Japanese occupation yeah. but we barely learn about what happened in Europe yes uh, what happened with Nazi then the atrocities that they did yeah that's why. Like out of like when I rank the world suffering, right? Of course, I would put my nations first. You know, we suffer from the Dutch and uh, Japan, yeah. and then after that, for some reason, it, you know, Palestine just came into mind. Like, and then, do you remember specific times when you had things that you heard kind of change your perspectives, mm. and you know, also what you learned about Israel beyond being this uh, yes. terrible per- perpetrator? Yes, yes, yes. I think a, my perspective changed primarily starting from my undergrad in Japan. So there in Japan, I met the first Jewish person in my whole life. He was my, he still is my friend, but uh, he was a student back in the Japanese university that I studied at. Was he Japanese? Uh, no. No, he's American. He's from New York, right? And yeah, I'm just... Surprised that he was also like an anti-occupation activist okay. uh, coming from New York. So that's the first Jewish person I knew, but I have never met an Israeli before. Not until 2017 when Avishlaim, the British-Israeli historian, uh, visited my city in commemoration of the 50 years of the occupation. So 2017, 50 years from 67, right? And he was invited to talk about the occupation in At Kyoto University. And for those who don't know, can you say a few words about Avishlaim? Yes. So Avishlaim is British-Israeli historian. He is an emeritus professor in Oxford. He has written a lot of important books on the region, such as Aaron Wall. Um, yeah, and he, he is of Iraqi Jewish descent, which 
makes him also another important person uh, about this issue. He talks a lot about the Iraqi Jewish diaspora and his experience moving from Iraq to Israel. So yeah, yeah. that's Professor Rafi and, and the most important thing uh, maybe for... Oh, for yes, the, yes, yes. He supports BTS, <laughs> no? He does? Uh, I don't know. Okay. Okay. Maybe that's like, uh, you know, that's like a kind of check that we, when we think about, <laughs> especially in the I more see. like progressive Jewish Zionist mm. anti-occupation is like, okay, we accept people who support BDS, but mm. maybe they are like, uh, for some people, it's like a red line, you know? Mm. But see, it's interesting see, see. that you are not sure about it. And for me, it's one of the first things that come into my mind. I see. I, I initially thought that you would want to say that he is the new historian. Oh, uh, yeah. But maybe that's not the first thing that came into your mind. Yeah, he's right. Like Benny Morris, like those historians who kind mm. of started writing about the Nakba and changing the yes. narrative of 48. Yeah. That, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay, so go on. So you heard him. Yes. But he's not really the or Israeli that you would ordinarily meet, right? <laughs> so, um, yeah, he really, really basically literally changed my perspective. So I, I could kind so, of like so valorize... Were you like, if, this, if the Israelis are like mm. that, why is there an occupation, no? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay, why, why, why aren't there more, you know, like bright uh, people like him, you yeah. know, uh, contributing about this uh, issue but anyway what I found interesting also is because I also have my my red checklist right what what I can accept from a person and what not yeah. and what I cannot right and I remember so what you what I was list? okay so what makes me it kind of like why I could accept Avishlam even though at that time I remember still being a very un, uh, uh, anti-Israeli person anti-Israeli anti-Zionist yeah yeah anti-Zionist okay. yeah I just I still cannot accept you know, the existence of Jewish state in Palestine at oh, the time. Okay. So basically, my red check at that time was whether a person supports Hamas or not. Uh-huh. Because I supported Hamas. Uh-huh. Oh, wow. And so, you know, you have this, is you know, pro-peace activist in Israel that talks about peace on occupation, but they would refrain from, you know, saying that, yes, Hamas is a legitimate form of resistance or Hamas is a form of... It's just like grievances manifesting into activism, right? And I remember Avishlaim saying something like, uh, uh, what we saw in Palestine, the election is one of among the most democratic election in the Middle East, you know, compared to the despotic region at the time. And he also said he accept the legitimacy of uh, Hamas government by virtue of the fair uh, the, the election that he deemed as fair as yeah. per international observer and so he mentioned about that oh, okay uh, he kind of like uh, initially i was hesitant to accept this person because he was an israeli person why why was why were you in the first place so like supportive of hamas okay in it like yeah because from israeli perspective we saw yes. we saw it like uh, Oh, we left Gaza, and uh, then Hamas and Fatah just started killing each other. Yes, and they could have made as a paradise, but they made yes. it a war field. Yes, well, because all Indonesians would not understand that part of history so much. Like I only knew about the Gaza disengagement plan. I don't know, maybe like three years ago or whatnot. Just very recently, um, my circumstance is a bit unique because I was. Um, I was educated in an institution for three years for my junior high school, which has strong inclination. It's not like linked, but have 
sympathy or very strong sympathy to the Muslim Brotherhood. So the kind of even in Indonesia they have uh, they have a party, a quite successful one, and they try to emulate the success of uh, Muslim Brotherhood uh, parties, Muslim parties that as like is inspired by Muslim Brotherhood. And so you heard him speaking about Hamas. And... Yes, and yeah, I did not expect an Israeli to be so pro-Palestinian and not only just playing this facade of, yeah, we are pro-peace and we don't we want occupation to end, but also go to the extent of saying there are forms of military resistance that are legitimate so long as it is within the boundary of international humanitarian law and, you know, this different law of wars, right? As long as it's within that parameters, then it's a legitimate form of resistance. Yeah. So then, okay, interesting. So I talked to him and then tried to read his books and then realized that he is a professor in Oxford. And voila, that's pretty much like... So in summary, you heard an Israeli professor from Oxford saying that uh, Hamas is a legitimate political party. And so you followed him (laughs) to Oxford. Well, it's not that clear cut. It's it's just part of the assessment, right? He also, like, I just find it interesting. He talks about his story about being an Iraqi Jew and how, you know, the kind of atrocity that Israel did. Okay, so you, so how was the experience learning about this conflict in Oxford or more broadly about the Middle East as an Indonesian? Well, first of all, it's rare that an Indonesian would took this path. And I think I somewhat verified that assumption because uh, the Anfield Directory in Oxford, the Middle Eastern Studies, said that I am the first Indonesian who, you know, participated in this program. Oh, wow. um, yeah, I mean, some Indonesians studied politics in Oxford or IR before, but not like Middle East, let alone about Israel-Palestine. Why a pro-Palestinian Indonesian activist uh, chooses to study Hebrew? Yeah. Why did you choose yeah. this? And what were the responses that, you've, that you have seen from around you, either in the UK, in Oxford, or back at home? Well, back at home, interestingly, the reactions is mostly of admiration. I initially thought that, oh, why are you studying Hebrew, you know, the language of the enemy or whatnot. But actually, like low-key, a lot of Palestinian activists back home want to study Hebrew. Like they they, they are fascinated. They would like to study about the language. Yeah. And so I, I don't find any repercussion uh, regarding this Yeah, uh, I saw a few adventure. articles in Hebrew even, uh, in Hebrew media about Indonesians deciding to learn Hebrew. But, you know, from our perspective, it's like, Oh, even uh, the Indonesians who are Muslim, most of them are fascinated with us. It's more like this. <laughs> but no, is no, it, no, but no, is no. It not like uh, like we say, Daita uh, Oyev, like know your enemy. Uh, well, so maybe for some activists, it's like that. But when you look at this, you know, maybe article about Indonesians learning about Hebrew, because I have learned at the only modern Hebrew language instruction institution located in Jakarta. No, so so why did you decide to learn Hebrew? What, what importance did that give you? Is it, yes. is it curiosity? Does it help yes. you professionally? So I observe that while in the past, a pro-Palestinian voice is a matter of consensus in Indonesia, regardless of your religion, regardless of your political identity or affiliation. Now there seems to be more polarization. And, you know, looking at, for instance, you know, some pro-Palestinian activists, 
some of them chant some anti-Semitic remarks or like use Palestinian symbols for domestic uh, political rallies. So it's not related to Palestine at all, but uh, these street goers use Palestinian flag, right? Yeah. To the extent that, you know, maybe this is the first of its kind that I found in the Muslim world that the Palestinian embassy actually protested the usage of their national symbols, you know. Yeah. And why in Hebrew again? Uh, because of the kind of perception that the pro-Palestinian activists did, it lead to anti-Palestinian position and pro-Israeli standpoint, especially from the non-Muslim minority. Oh, so is uh, it a bit group. like we heard in Northern Ireland how Catholics yes, stood something with Palestinians? Like so, oh, wow. So it's really becoming like a political internal so, issue. Yes, it's become an internal issue. And, and so by me learning Hebrew, I could actually show to this segment of the population that, hey, sometimes when you have someone like a Muslim speaking about Palestine issue, how important it is to fight against the occupation, you would already be like, not like cancelled, but then people will not listen to you. Like some segment of the population, especially the non-Muslims, who perceive you as being, you know, politically Islamist or because Palestine symbol is associated with political Islamism. Yeah. And political Islamism is understood as not being kind to the non-Muslim minority. So they wouldn't listen to you. So by learning Hebrew, it kind of gives me like a... Credentials? Like a green card, like a, like a credentials, like a green card sign saying that I'm not speaking here as kind of like one-sidedly to impose on you or one particular view, but I am here with a with a position of expertise, with a position of knowledge, of understanding. But are the but are the non-Muslim minority in yes. Indonesia are they taking like a pro-Israeli stance? Uh I think, well, some people are just simply like, just don't care about the Palestinian issue. Yeah. But some denominations in Christianity that is, for some reason, have these philo-Semitic sentiments, right? Mm -hmm. uh, would be very, very passionate about going to Israel and changing their, their names and their greetings. So, for instance, previously, Christians would just say like, good morning, Indonesian, like, selamat pagi. But mm -hmm. now they would say shalom, some of them. And oh, wow. Yeah, and they would change their names, you know, from like typical Western name like Peter into, I don't know, Natanya or... Mm, really? They are or Matan even. Indonesian yes. called Natanya. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, if someone yeah. has a Hebrew name, it means probably that he's a maybe pro-Israeli Christian, even in mm, Indonesia. But that's a good indi indication, yeah. <laughs> okay, wow. wow. So, um, so you mentioned, yeah, and how was the learning Hebrew process specifically with Hebrew? So your reference point was mostly to Arabic that you had already known. Yeah, correct. Uh, so you didn't have troubles with the pronunciation. Uh, with the structure, grammar, logic, just the general logic of the language, I have no problem. Did it make it you even... feel like, wow, if the languages are so similar, how come in, you know, the faith, the, you know, Islam and Judaism are so apart? Well, I don't, even today, why do I feel passionate about, like, going to, uh, like, Jewish festival as compared to, like, Easter or, like, Christmas? Mm -hmm. Like, I personally feel that Judaism and Islam is, is closer than people would to portray to be, right? In um, what ways? In what ways? Particularly with regard to, well, monotheism, first of all. Okay. Um, 
like for me it's just it's my personal opinion but it's just difficult for me to include christianity within the monotheistic category especially with the trinity the trinity understanding yeah in a lot of ways just from a practical point of view i could pray inside a synagogue but not a church like according to the sharia okay. because the church would have a cross the church would have statues typically and it's not permissible to for muslim to pray inside places that have idols basically like um right you don't have you, sh- you shouldn't pray inside a place that you have idols whereas in synagogue you don't have idols and so like of course, I, I came from a conservative muslim family and you know like things that are christian are just feels a bit more controversial yeah for me personally like individually like it's uh, they would we would problematize saying merry christmas for instance yeah. because when you say merry christmas then you would acknowledge christ and uh, acknowledging christ as christians understood as as, as god basically yeah. whereas saying haksamea in, in passover well yeah we also believe that moses kind of like wander on the deserts we also believe that moses received torah in in sinai yeah and there's no like this just just as a religious person i feel less theological obstacle yeah. in engaging with like you know the jewish friends yeah so on jewish traditions so let's talk then, a little bit about judaism and zionism you yes. said that well you had a few from the first american new york jewish activists yes. you met back in japan and yes. you know along the way here in oxford you met many jewish people yes uh, and i'm assuming that some mm. of them have also been uh, zionist and you said back at the time i still could not accept a jewish state in palestine yes so you come from an anti-Zionist upbringing and understanding Correct. Um, has meeting Zionist Jews changed that, challenged that? What happened there? Yes. Let's just begin of what's my current position, right? Yeah. Um, so let's talk about what is ideal and because that's what defines your identity, right? Uh, whereas it's practical or not, then, you know, it's it's a matter of implementations. But... A person, I'm, I'm very much inclined to the one-state solution position. So neither Jewish nor Arab. Plus, also to understand it within the context of redressing past injustices. So it's not just, yeah, okay, let's merge into one state. But like what happened in the past should not be forgotten. Because I, would, I believe that uh, peace could not be achieved without... Like a, a robust peace could not be... <sighs> Yeah, achieve you're, without you're talking about reconciliation yeah reconciliations exactly. yeah and rest, restitutive justice mm-hmm. so coming to that position uh whereas in the past you know my environment would push me to believing that the the israelis one we have to you know erase israel from the map and these israelis who were originally from the west does that mean like throw them back just just yeah we yes throw yeah. them to europe yes okay. that's what okay. we understood um, just throw me back to poland i'm, I'm going to connect <laughs> with my uh, yiddish speaking roots and just uh, yes. start my life again there that yes. that sounds because, like a fair resolution yeah because because you you have to you have to know the, uh, how Indonesia understood decolonization is very limited to our own local experience. 
we yeah. actually get independence and the Dutch actually go back to Netherlands. Yeah, and so, so it's we like said another story. It's another yeah, colon, we, colonizing, even though it was yes. sent by a specific state, they can still yes. go back. But that's not the case. Yeah, yeah. We we say Well, these Dutch people who have also been comfortable in Indonesia, they also have to go to, to the hassle of moving. So why the Israel whine so much about, oh, it's going to be difficult or whatnot, like other colonizers also yeah. experience that, right? So that's our understanding, limited understanding of decolonization at that time. Yeah. And today, so yeah, that's my position, right? So I use that definition of pro one set solution. Will I still be considered anti-Zionist? Maybe I am. Yeah, because with a one-state solution, then you will not have a Jewish state in Palestine, and the definition of Zionism is supporting the Jewish state existence yeah, of a Jewish state in Palestine. This, right? It's kind of this. You know, there are people who support two states, right? One uh, Jewish yes. state and one Palestinian state. But there are yes. some activists who would actually say, "Yeah, two states, one Palestinian and one for all its citizens, non-Jewish." <laughs> you know, so. So that's no. kind of uh, pro-justice, but also in mm. a way not allowing the Jewish people to have their own uh, national identity. So, so you don't yeah. accept a, a Jewish, um, it really matters how you frame it, is it a Jewish superiority, which shows one way of it, or a, a Jewish right for self-determination in Palestine? Well, specific, I mean, have you heard about this concept of Jewish territorialism, of Jewish self-determination only, but without the term in Palestine, which means that, yeah, Jews have national self-determination and they would like to make their own state, but it doesn't have to be in Palestine. And so this Jewish territorialist, having understood that there is already a native population there, then they propose, you know, different regions, right? I think 11 of them, but none of them succeed. Okay, so let's create so, another conflict in Uganda. What <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I, I don't I haven't really under like researched much. Like these regions are there like native population inside or not? But I could never sanction like an erasure of a previous population. But don't you so think that there is something inherently maybe anti-Semitic hmm. in uh, assuming that we cannot have a state of our own, and so many other countries can be Muslim, can be Christian, even to some extent. Don't you feel that? You know, it's like the Israeli says, oh, there are so many Muslim states. Why, why is all the world so obsessed with only one small Jewish state? Well, it's not a lot of Muslim states. It's states of different nations having sort of self-determination who happen to, uh, to profess the religion of Islam. It's not, there's no Muslim nation, right? Yeah. And like the Muslim Kurds, for instance, even though, you know, they have... A national identity they have yet to have a state and I don't think it will be ethical to give them the authority okay just through the Arabs and whatnot in your Kurdistan region and to you know make your own state okay so we spoke a lot about religion and you've explained some fascinating things about Indonesia and the last link that I want to speak about uh, mm. coming towards uh, a year, about a year for the Abraham Accords or the yes. normalization deals as, as some call it. I'm not mm. sure how to call it myself, actually. Um, you know, there have been a few Muslim countries who have, you know, said, okay, 
we accept Israel even though the, the, the Palestinian issue hasn't been solved, there is still occupation, probably for interests and money and whatever, as we've seen, especially under the Trump administration, thank God, he's not there anymore. But there are still talks, even without Trumps, with some countries, you know, who might follow suit, Bahrain and Sudan and Morocco, Uh, is Indonesia, as we heard under some sources, one of those potential countries? Yeah, um, I think so. There is a strong indication that there are serious attempts, organized attempts, to include Indonesia within the list of countries that uh, normalize. Do we know about specific talks that we do. have been taking place? We do. So... Uh, I would draw from public sources and sources from my interviews for my thesis. So from public sources, we do know that there is an offer of $2 billion of aid from the U.S. promised to Indonesia shall they join the Israeli normalization marathon. Mm-hmm. That's what we understood from public information. I have also happened to talk with the vice chairperson of the Israeli-Indonesia Chamber of Commerce. So if you go to Tel Aviv, there's yeah. actually the Chamber of Commerce for um, okay, Indonesia so and Israel. Okay, so there are commerce, commercial relations. Yeah. Okay. So since we had, have, we have not had that commercial relations until 2001 when the ban was revoked. So you would actually have commercial interactions, especially for military purchases um, like guns uh, and technology-based imports. Israel. Okay, so who would be the public? Uh, so obviously, as you described, it's a quite an publicly anti-Israeli society yeah. uh, holding anti-Israeli views. So who would be the public figures who would come out there in Indonesia and speak to Indonesian saying, come on, we have to have relations with Israel? Saying what? Okay. Who is it and what oh, would he say? Okay, so two segments, let's say three segments of the population. First, are from the Muslim community themselves. We have a Muslim president. He has deceased. Uh, his name is uh, Abdurrahman Wahid or Gustur, who actually promote the opening of uh, trade relations with Israel. Mm-hmm. And his reasoning is, right, a very interesting reasoning. He said, we had a relation with China, with, Unis- with the Soviet Union, who are atheist whose ideology is more bankrupt than compared to us. You know, we are a multi-religious society, right? So Indonesia is not secular. We are multi-religious because you cannot separate religion from the state, but the religion happens to be many religions, but not only Islam. So the, the president said, we had no problems having relations with China and Soviet Union. Why we had problems associating ourselves with Israel, a monotheistic nation. So it's interesting that you would have to connect Israel to Judaism for you to have a strong basis as a Muslim Mm -hmm. to normalize relations with the nation. Once you understand how detached from the tradition the Israeli elites are, Mm -hmm. uh, well, under Likud, for instance, then you would be, you know, you would be bereft of Strong reasoning, right? Like, for instance, what when you say you know monotheistic nation or whatnot, like, is it really reflect like how how far monotheism or the Jewish tradition inform public policy making? 
uh, or Jewish ethics and philosophy inform public policy making yeah, Israel. So just, I don't think so it's just, that strong. Okay, so just saying, come on, we we've 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 had and we have relations with a like uh, worse countries. Yes, as I understand, so why not Israel <laughs> or like the Israeli as Moran saying, double standards, one for China, one for Israel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So that's kind of like the Muslims president argument, and he would also say something like, uh, yeah, some verses in the religion uh, in Islam saying that oh, uh, the people of the book are actually people that we should interact with and whatnot. So yeah. you would actually have to use some religious. Uh, connotation argument yeah. uh, coming from the Muslim side. Then you have the second segment, which is the military. They are tends to be the public officials tends to be realistic. They say, you know, the Arabs have been losing all the time. Why are we keeping, you know, why are we so stern and not wanting to normalize when the reality on the ground has changed, right? Yeah. So why why should we remain an idealist when the reality we have pragmatic? You know, we have, Let's look at our yeah. own interests and correct, uh, okay. correct. And the last segment, the third segment, I would say, like the many non-Muslims or, so yeah, many non-Muslims. That's one. And number two are the progressive Muslims who just want to dissociate themselves from the Islamist. And you could see that the Islamists are very, very much pro-Palestinian. Yeah. So just by virtue of dissociating yeah. themselves from the Islamists, then they would say, yeah, Palestine needs our help, but is our donation really? being received where is the report of the donation you want to see that otherwise uh you know your movement is suspicious who knows because there are some uh reports maybe saying that the donations for syrian refugees are actually being misappropriated by the rebels right yeah. and they would use this very little incident to generalize as though all donations in palestine would go to hamas rather than go to be benefited yeah. by the Palestinian NGOs, for instance. Yeah. So there are these skeptics, these skeptists yeah. that would say, yeah, it's good to support Palestine, but we shouldn't be that, you but, know. But Gilan, you know, even for Israeli leftists to mm. criticize those normalization deals is, yes. is, is not popular because, you know, it's kind of seeing it how even uh, Muslim countries who supported Palestine are... going towards the Israeli side and in a way making this power imbalance even more imbalanced. But at the same time, you know, the notion that we will not normalize relations uh, until Palestine is independent, for example, hasn't been helpful in any way. So that's where my okay. doubt comes. So I also have some doubts because, okay, we are, have not gone any way with this status quo of not normalizing. So the assumption is, okay, because it hasn't done anything, we have to do something else yeah. to do it differently. But you could end up with two different results, differently as in different for the better or different for the worse. Yeah. So in my understanding, yes, the current reality is so much unacceptable, the status quo. But just because, okay, we don't like the status quo, you have to change. What if the change comes to the worst? That's what I'm worried about. And so my understanding why people do not want normalization is because we, are, we live in a cruel world and we just sometimes have to pick the, the least of the two evils. And because if we normalize, then X, Y, Z. And one of the strongest reasons being that 
like normalization is the only bargaining chip that we that Muslims and pro Palestinian camp has left. Literally, there's no other reason why Israel would want to change the status quo apart from like literally normalization is what is yeah, like le- legitimacy legitimacy the really really last thing because yeah. they are not under threat militarily and now today why bds anger them so much is because the perception of threat is now has changed into the form of legitimacy mm-hmm. they are not really that much afraid maybe for hezbollah rockets as compared to the attack against the legitimacy that is brought by a bds maybe for instance so from that understanding yes It sounds stupid that we have to stick with the same strategy that doesn't work. But if by sticking to the status quo, it means preventing the worst, then maybe rationally speaking, that would be the better option. I think that's how someone yeah. would frame it. Yeah. yeah. And in and, and your personal view? In shortcut, I am more inclined to that argument of saying there are more to lose from the pro-Palestinian side by accepting normalization than there, are, there is to gain. Uh, because I also understand, you know, the, <laughs> realistically, if you want to have a deal, you have to have something to offer. And there's not much to offer at the moment um, apart from this legitimacy part. And can you see anything positive in the current, you know, political situation that Palestinians or any future peace might gain Uh, if Indonesia follows suits? Uh, I can only think of one thing, right? Like, if we have an d- Israeli embassy, like the one, like, Turkey have an Israeli embassy, right? Right. Uh, and Turkey is now very critical of Israel, right? Yeah. When you protest, Israel will actually listen to you more, in a sense. When you take away your ambassador, and when you cut, trade relations as a form of protest when you have already official relations, this protest seems more direct and more felt rather than Indonesia saying in, the, in front of the UN, oh, we want to, we condemn Israeli action. Like this is just words which has no consequences. Whereas if we have yeah. the ability to, to call the ambassador, to protest to the ambassador directly, even to, to call them back or to expel for several you know, duration yeah. of time, it will cause embarrassment that would lead the Israeli government might to reconsider its policy to Palestine. But yeah. that's the only thing that I could imagine yeah, the benefit of it normalization. It is, is a good point. And all these things that happen in the world in front of our eyes, we also need to look at uh, you know, positive out of that. Uh, yes. <laughs> there's not much positive. Yeah. Wow, Gilang, yeah, we've spoken for a lot of time now. Yeah, we'll definitely be in touch. And, uh, and thank you so much for your time. And I wish you a few days after, uh, but still, we can still say Shana Tova. So. Okay, thank you. It's Shana Tova. Lehitraot. Lehitraot, Matan. Lehitraot.